When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. Happy Halloween week, everyone! So this week, we're taking a look into a certain aspect of horror that is often forgotten about, and that is kids' horror, both intentional and unintentional. Let's begin with intentional kids' horror, and in my opinion, one of the best examples of it is Coraline. So... If you have not seen Coraline, it's directed by Henry Selick from Leica Studios. It's a stop-motion animated film, and it's fantastic. Um, I think it came out in, I want to say, 2007. I'm going to fact-check that right now. I have to be my own producer. It came out in 2009. (laughs) Um, It came out in 2009, and I think it's kind of, like, cemented itself as a really good example of kids' horror. I don't think there's many examples of kids horror in general because i think it's like terrain that is a little bit rugged and a little bit difficult to maneuver but Coraline really knocks it out of the park and i think the way that they're able to do that is by taking different elements of horror and kind of like turning them on their heads a little bit so in many horror films we know there is usually like an external like source that is haunting and stalking our protagonist something from an other world that is pulling our protagonist into this new dimension right and like is waiting to corrupt their current life or there's like this big bad monster But in Coraline, because there is an intended kid audience, obviously they can't have something overtly stalking this child who's supposed to be like nine in the movie. Um, So they have to kind of be a little bit more subtle in the beginning with how they're using horror with this character. So in the beginning of the film, it really reads like this fantastical journey um, with Coraline like entering the other world and in a like she's attempting to escape the mundanity of her own life and to find parents who understand her because her parents in her regular world are just like overworked and they just moved into this new house and they're just not too concerned with the interest of Coraline and so she feels in a way a little bit abandoned honestly and so when she goes into this other world via this portal and this house that she's now moved into she gets exactly that she gets exactly what she wants And this is kind of like if you're an adult, your ears are probably like pinging up to like, oh, when is something going to go wrong? Because it's like the whole thing in life of like, 
be careful what you wish for because you just might get it, that type of thing. Um, so that's kind of the most prominent turn that an, probably an adult audience would experience. But kids could probably begin to guess that something is about to go awry. So when she enters the other world, she meets other versions of her parents, um, the other mother and the other father. The literally other is in their name. Um, and in this version of her world, her parents are, you know, loving, and I'm sure her other parents are too, but they're overtly loving and caring. She gets everything that she wanted, and it's just like a wonderful time, and she wants to stay in this world forever. And it's not until the other mother, who is kind of the the ringleader of this whole ordeal, it's not until the other mother proposes that she, in order to stay in the world, she has to sew buttons into Coraline's eyes. That's the only way for her to stay. And this is where I think everyone is like, okay, something is going wrong here. Um, because in any other piece of like kids fantastical media, I think they would just be like, oh, well, you know, you just have to like get buttons sewn onto your eyes. But they make it very like clear that this is not a good thing. This is not an, uh, an, an easy process. This is not a painless process like to get buttons sewn into your eyes. Um, and so this is when, you know, Coraline kind of realizes, OK, no, I don't. I don't want to do that. Um, and if you are watching this film like over and over again, like if you've seen it multiple times, you'll notice just little drops, like little breadcrumbs that are left by Henry Selick and the other like filmmakers on the film that kind of alert you to something being wrong. I mean, and, but it's not until you've seen the entire movie to understand that something is wrong to understand what these breadcrumbs are. So one of the things that you notice in the scenes leading up to the other mother basically proposing that in order for Coraline to stay in this perfect world of her, she has to get buttons on onto her eyes, is that the other mother has silhouettes of the ghost children, which if you've seen the film, the other mother basically has like trapped these kids, like stolen their souls or whatever, um, like kidnapped them stole their souls and now like she in theory kind of like owned them right and she's trying to do the same thing to Coraline so the other mother has silhouettes of the children that she's stolen and like taken their souls from hanging up on her wall and the other father who's basically like a puppet of the other mother um because the other mother is controlling literally everything and the, the other father like sings a song to warn Coraline so it's just these little things that began to like pop up like daisies like as you're watching this movie and then there's just a turn where like there's a big like horror reveal even though they've been kind of doing it under the surface the entire time and then it like bubbles up into this massive thing where it really begins to feel like a horror movie um so like one of the biggest elements of this is the the doll that Coraline walks around with um if you've seen the film Coraline is given a doll by her new neighbor YB uh, and the doll was in his grandmother's attic for some reason and so he brings it to her and it looks like her the doll looks like her and if you notice in the like credit opening credit scene of the movie you see someone which is later revealed to be the other mother making a doll that looks like Coraline and sending it into the universe and so the doll eventually finds its way to Coraline 
and YB is the person who gives it to her. But this is not just a regular doll. This doll is the being that I mentioned in the beginning that a lot of other horror films have that is like stalking and looking over Coraline and like watching her. We can't have a physical being walking and stalking this child, so we have it via this doll. The doll is how the other mother sees Coraline and sees what she's doing. Um, and this was ultimately, the doll was like how she almost got trapped by the, by the other mother. So it's just a lot of these little elements begin to kind of like crop up and you don't notice them until you're right smack dab in the horror of the film. And you're like, oh my God, like this is this is legitimately scary and there are just some like not other than the kind of like you know covert things that are happening there are some pretty overtly scary things happening in this movie um number one the literal transformation of the other mother into this like spider like metal spider woman she goes from being like a physical human to like literally transforming into this like metal spider woman and she looks like skin and bones and her bones are made of metal and it's like legitimately terrifying I think um and I know that a lot of people (laughs) who have seen this movie are like yeah that is like that's scary not just like as a kid watching that like that's scary as like a a 20 or like 23 or 25 year old like person watching this movie like those they're just some like moments that just kind of like jar you to be like oh my gosh like this is a horror movie that's intended for kids um and so I think like that is that's kind of the 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 best way to describe what this movie is and what it's doing like it's the last acts of the film and really the film in general but mainly the last acts of the film function as like the revealing of the wolf in sheep's clothing that we got in the beginning of the movie so like I said in the beginning of the movie it reads as this fantastical journey of a girl escaping to another world. And maybe if it wasn't a horror movie, it would be like, you know, Coraline goes to the other world and she realizes that it's not all that she wants to be. And the other, like her other mother and other father help her realize that. And then she comes back to her actual world and she has a greater appreciation for it. In theory, that is what a a kid's fantastical journey movie would do. But in this it is kind of the same those same beats however it is like a very not violent but just a very scary way for her to realize like to be careful what you wish for in theory I think the best thing about Coraline is that it challenges what horror is considered to be I think because horror a lot of horror films are marked by you know like intense violence or gore or blood um or sex in a lot of cases I think Coraline definitely fits into the horror genre very well and does it by like not necessarily using physical horror but the psychological terrors um as a way to communicate like a horror story and it does it really really well like I would put Coraline up there with like other scary movies that be it I'm am a scaredy cat when it comes to horror movies I feel like I think I've mentioned this a couple of times um but I think Coraline as a film that does psychological like a thriller Coraline is amongst the best to me all right so now let's get into the unintentional of like kids horror and kids media and really I'm just talking about a movie that feels 
like a horror movie, but technically isn't a horror movie. And I feel like by hearing that definition, you could probably guess the movie that I'm going to say. But if you don't, perhaps you might want to phone home. Huh? That was good. That was good. That was funny. I I laughed. Um, and I hope you laughed too. <laughs> Any, oh gosh. Okay. Anyways, uh, that was very cheesy, but I am talking about 1982's E.T. The Extraterrestrial, directed by Steven Spielberg. This is a movie that definitely is not a horror movie, but feels like a horror movie. And I think a lot of people, including myself when I was younger, thought that this movie was a horror movie. And that is not at all a, a coincidence. I think a lot of people eventually, like, were scared of E.T. when they were kids and then revisited it as an adult and you, when you see the actual story that's there um, then you can appreciate it for like it being kind of this heartwarming story between this boy and this alien um, but when you're a kid you're like this is scary um, and like I said that's not really at all a coincidence because the original script for the film was intended to be a lot darker than that so um, E.T. was meant to be uh, kind of a follow-up to Steven Spielberg's earlier film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and it was supposed to be called Night Skies. And the concept, from what I understand it to be, is like about like a killer alien coming down to Earth and everything like that. And obviously, that was eventually <laughs> scrapped, and they went in a more uh, like family-friendly, heartwarming direction, um, I think. Melissa Matheson, who is the uh, screenwriter for E.T., she went in and like knocked out the screenplay in like a weekend or something crazy like that. And it was like pretty much didn't need many edits like it was it was pretty much good to go. Um, But it was intended to be a lot darker. And from what I understand, the elements of Night Skies that were not used in E.T. eventually were used in Poltergeist. So if you're not believing that this, that E.T. was supposed to be a horror movie, the elements of the original concept for the film made it into an actual horror movie in Poltergeist. That isn't to say that the film is completely void of these horror elements, because it's not. And it does it almost covertly, like without us explicitly notice, noticing them until you like take a second back and you're like, oh my gosh, like that's legitimately terrifying. So number one, the, I think the biggest thing about E.T. that kind of screams horror to me at least is how Spielberg chose to use light and sound with introducing E.T. especially. For a lot of the film, a lot of things take place at night or in the dark. And be it that may have been to kind of like mask the shortcomings of like some of the effects or like visual effects, even though I think the visual effects still like hold up pretty well. With E.T., especially in the opening sequence where we see the spaceship and like we see all the other E.T.s, I guess, um, collecting plants or whatever it is, we don't ever really know what their physical form looks like. We know that they're close to the ground. We can, we know that they have like a, an exoskeleton, like, so they have external like organs, but we don't know what they look like. And we only see them kind of like shuffling around. We sometimes hear like the noises that, and like eventually it's revealed that it's like the screaming, um, like when E.T. is running away from the like government agents who are trying to get him but we never really see what he looks like until Elliot like shines this light on him in this very like 
uh, abrupt way and then we all get this very like intense reveal of what EC's form actually looks like um and that's definitely like a horror element like to reveal this being that it eventually becomes like friend they definitely reveal him as this foe like this scary thing this thing to be scared of and it's not until Elliot you know like goes back with you know childlike wonder and curiosity to get et that we begin to soften kind of with him but in the beginning it's a very scary reveal like (laughs) the scene when they're in like the corn socks and elliot like just shines the light on et and you just see the the uh et puppet kind of like ah like waving about um that's terrifying it was terrifying as a kid not be it as an adult when you look at it you're like oh okay that's not (laughs) That's not very scary um, with looking at this like puppet that definitely just kind of felt like it was like being waved back and forth um, by like a PA or someone. But at the time, like as a kid, it is very scary. And I will say, if you have seen E.T. lately or really, I think the only way you can watch E.T. is maybe on Peacock Um I think maybe on Peacock or Tubi it might be, but they, I think most places only have the 1982 version, which I think is the best way to watch it because there was a remastering of it for the 20th anniversary in 2002. And I guess Spielberg following in the steps of his good buddy, George Lucas, uh, they made a CGI version of E.T. Um, and they added it to that film. And I think that dates it horribly worse than the 1982 version um and there are definitely some scenes with the cgi et that are added in that kind of like break that suspension of disbelief a little bit so if this podcast inspires you to go back and watch et only watch the 1982 version if you can Anyways, getting back to to what I was saying. In general, that is not exactly like the warmest welcome that befits a family-friendly movie. And that kind of like lets you know that this maybe is not like fully a family-friendly movie. You know what I mean? Um, And I think just also like the character design of E.T. in general. I think how how aliens tend to be depicted or... um, shown to people because these are beings that we are solely making up like we're kind of just improving the design of them um et has a very kind of scary look like he's low to the ground he doesn't really like have legs he kind of just has like feet um he has these like long kind of gangly arms and long gangly fingers and this bulbous head and like this neck that extends and everything like that. Like he's got a lot of horror elements going for him. And I think the one thing that kind of keeps E.T. from looking scary consistently is his eyes. He has these very kind, like almost baby-like eyes. And I think like when you have a creature whose eyes are super big, um, because eyes can be so expressive, you kind of, you don't necessarily feel so much fear for E.T. because he has this very like kind look about him um which I think is just very interesting it's kind of like the meshing of like horror but also like not horror kind of works together um so later in the film 
it's discovered, if you remember, if you've seen the movie, it's discovered that E.T. and Elliot are somehow cosmically linked. Now, is it through the power of friendship? I not I don't know. But we know <laughs> we know that they are cosmically linked. Um, number one, from the first scene where Elliot goes to school and E.T. stays at home and gets drunk. And so in turn, Elliot is at school and he's drunk. Um, and so that's how we know that they're cosmically linked but in a very scary turn of events dare i say towards the end et is dying um i'm it's never really explained why or how he starts dying all of a sudden but we just know that he is dying um and in turn because he is dying elliot is also dying um now they don't fully let e like elliot completely die with et like elliot begins to get better as et is getting worse i guess that's et relinquishing this like parasitic relationship that he has with elliot um but that is kind of like this weird thing that happens in this movie that i think a lot of people just don't tend to remember that they are in this parasitic relationship with each other and like yes it's like a heartwarming connection of like friendship and you know like out of this universe friendship but that is scary on its own that this alien comes down befriends this boy latches on to his being and i guess like is now cosmically linked with him and when he dies the little boy is going with him i just think that that's very scary <laughs> that and like the scene itself when et is like dying and there's all these like you know doctors and everything in the house and it's like very clinical look it looks like it has like a lot of horror moving bakings that scene where et dies it's very it's a very visceral and like real death that et experiences um and there's like the chaos of doctors like trying to save him et like gets his white cast over him and then like there's the sound of elliot like as he's getting better like yelling in the background saying like you're killing him you're killing him it is it's a lot of chaos happening in one scene again for a family friendly movie very horror-esque i think and also fun fact i learned this in that scene they got doctors or they got actual like medical professionals to work on the movie or like to be in that scene so all of the jargon that they're saying and everything is real they almost like were given the note of actually try and resuscitate this alien and so all the things that they're saying are actual like real medical terms that you would say in a situation like that which i think just you know helps with the believability of the movie as much as et the extraterrestrial can be believable but this also reminds me of the fact that if you haven't already if you want to see an example of good acting in kids watch henry thomas's henry thomas plays elliot watch his audition for et because it will make you cry in a way that you were not expecting to cry that little boy really <laughs> was he was acting like the rent was due because my goodness he, like as soon as you see it or the seed like the first couple of seconds of it you immediately understand uh oh yeah okay i get it now i get <laughs> i get why he was casted for this role because he did a phenomenal job anyways that's just that's a little that's an aside that's a side thing but to kind of wrap up i think the way that spielberg kind of chooses to employ horror doesn't necessarily 
mean that he's intending to scare his audience so much so that he's kind of intending to deepen the emotions that they have um, at any given point of the film. Like the horror kind of keeps them very vulnerable and that allows them and opens them up to feeling these really intense feelings for E.T. and for these characters as we go throughout the movie. Um, so like, though it takes like a heartwarming turn for the better, I do think horror also helps to kind of legitimize E.T.'s otherness, like otherness as an alien and also kind of legitimizes Elliot's otherness too. And it definitely keeps like the audience in suspense of kind of if E.T. is friend or foe. We don't know until the very end, which he's obviously friend. We've got a few episodes under our belt here at the Hi, I'm Bobby podcast. And I, guys, I got to tell you that it wasn't simpler to start a podcast than with Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast straight from your phone or your computer. Anchor will literally distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. If this sounds amazing to you, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I'm so excited, and I hope you guys will make a podcast today. So thank you so, so much for listening to this week's episode of the Hi, I'm Bobby podcast. And I am super excited to announce that we have received yet another audio message. So let's take a listen to what Anna Grace Waters had to say this week. Hey, Bobby, I just finished listening to your episode and I really liked it. And um, what Jada asked kind of got me thinking, how do you think um, TV storylines and plots are going to have changed or if they're going to change? I feel like they have changed a little bit maybe with going from one episode a week to being able to binge episodes and seasons like some of these um, shows, like Stranger Things, that comes out a season at a time instead of an episode at a time. I feel like some of the stories, like the um, the episode structure, will be a little different because they want you to keep binging and to, and to watch one more episode rather than um, having you come back and watching it again next week and kind of maybe doing a faux closure. Anyways, I love your podcast. I just want to hear your thoughts. Thanks. All right. So Anna Grace Waters, thank you so, so much for submitting that question. And I think it's a very, very good question. Um, So in the age of streaming, I think Anna has definitely a great grasp of what's going on here with the fact that episode structures definitely have changed. Um, as streaming has begun to pick up over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, So personally, I do think that when you have a streaming service like Netflix um, that kind of exists on a binge model, they are going to kind of structure TV shows more so as like four to five hour long movies versus like a month to two month long run of a season of a TV show. You know what I mean? So they're going to 
be able to kind of be watched in one long stretch of time like you would a movie versus breaking it up week to week. Um, However, I do think in a weird way, we're kind of seeing kind of this revival of the weekly release of TV shows again. So for a long time, it was really just like the, the Netflix model of you drop an entire season that's like 10 to 12 or 13 episodes. You watch it all at one time and you are going to have to wait until another year goes by to get the next season. Um, You're kind of able to talk about things in one, one fail swoop. Um, And also I I think that structure also begets a lot of like nitpicky details because you're watching it so closely, like episode to episode. So there's kind of no room for there to not be uh, like continuity in places or like if something is brought up in an episode it has to be addressed in this episode or like down the line like it kind of brings about like a certain level of like nitpickiness and you're not maybe focusing on the larger story at hand um but now we're kind of seeing this revival of the the weekly release uh with i know like disney plus was one of the first streaming platforms that i saw uh with wandavision And here lately, Apple TV with uh, like Ted Lasso, like releasing week to week. And I think we're seeing that come back with a, this is not necessarily talking about how like TV is written or like the structure of the episodes and everything. But when you have a show that it's kind of dropped in one time, so like it drops on one day and everyone has like binged the season by the end of the weekend or whatever it is, um, you kind of talk about it for, you know, like a week or two, like you know, maybe a month at most. So like uh, the masses of people have seen the entire season and then it, it falls off the face of the earth until the (laughs) the show, like the show comes back around, um, with a brand new season. Whereas shows like WandaVision and Ted Lasso, who had weekly releases, um, number one, you're able to focus on the overarching story a lot more and the characters a lot more and like you're able to like have those really emotional like moments that stick with you in an episode um versus like focusing in hard onto like continuity and like how the episode flows into another um you're just able to appreciate what is the larger story that's trying to be told right Um, But also, I think it really, like, invites a sense of community as well. Um, I remember, like, I was fairly new on TikTok when WandaVision kind of was was being released. And I remember that there was weeks at a time where my entire For You page on TikTok was people talking about WandaVision, theorizing about WandaVision, like, you know, doing edits of WandaVision stuff, like everyone was talking about it. And it was like inviting that sense of community back to TV in a way um, where everyone week to week would be talking about it. It reminds me of like those famous photos of Times Square in 1998 uh, that when they were like airing the finale of Seinfeld and it felt like everyone in the world was watching this thing at this exact same time and was able to talk about it. Like it felt like that, like those types of moments. So I think, you know, like that in a, in a sense, the general structure or things or how things are going to be written with a binge forward versus a weekly release forward platform. One is going to make it feel like you're watching a six hour long movie and the other is going to make it feel like you're just watching a one to two month long story played out week to week. Mm-hmm.
there's definitely some pros and cons, but that was an amazing question, Anna. And if you want to be like Anna or Jada from last week and be a wonderful human and send me an audio message, you can in the description of every single episode. There is a link where you can send me an audio message. It could be a hot take. It could be a response to something I said. It could be a question. It's really up to you. My only ask is, of course, just to keep it respectful. And if audio messages really are not your thing, you can just shoot me a DM over on Instagram at The Afternoon Special or over on Twitter at Hi, I'm Bobby. I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode and that you'll join me next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Just checking in and seeing if you might want to step away from the noise of the world for just a moment and connect back to you. If so, join me on my podcast, Letting It Settle with Michael Galleon, where we'll explore mindfulness, self-love, and personal growth as I share practical insights and tools to hopefully help inspire you to start to take charge of your mental and emotional well-being. Search for Letting It Settle with Michael Galleon on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.